0: Hello, everybody. So we got this email from, uh, let's go ahead and call him Q here, which reads, Hello, thank you for the invitation to discuss these things appropriately. Truthfully, I am more interested in discussion, and I understand how the breadth and depth of my questions don't really comport with the podcast format. I had several paragraphs typed out and deleted them all. Needless to say, I can go into more depth on any of these, but the following questions, I believe, are both possible and appropriate to reflect on. And I agree with you, Q. Let's go ahead and uh, look at these questions, and I'm gonna go ahead and answer them one at a time here. The first question is, why did the law come first when Christ is greater? Well, first off, to answer your question, first thing that we need to understand is Christ did come before the law. Not his death, burial, and resurrection, but we do understand that Jesus Christ, the only son of God, has been around for absolute eternity. He has been around since far before Sinai. But if you mean the gospel, well, the thing about the gospel is that that did come before uh, the law given at Sinai. We understand the proto evangelium of Genesis chapter three verse fifteen did come before the law was given, and furthermore the um the gospel as it developed right there's this thing called progressive revelation. God does not, whenever he's getting ready to do something really big, he doesn't just do it all at once and give us all the details. He wants it to grow. He wants people to mull on the significance of what he is doing before it is fulfilled. So you have the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15 given, in which God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake, right? Then you get to Genesis 12, where God tells Abraham, um, in your seed, singular seed, um, all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. He gives more details that the one who would crush the head of the serpent is ultimately going to come from the the loins of Abraham. And this keeps going more and more. And then, well, we get to Galatians here, which gives us a little bit of... um, context here, a little bit of understanding. So from Galatians chapter 3, beginning in the 15th verse, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings or seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. "...until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary." Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law, then, contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law could have been given, or had been given, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law." But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So, when it comes to the law, the law is what? It was a guardian that now, for believers, does serve in a tutor-like role. Something we're not supposed to forget while we're being brought up as Christians. But our sins he says the law was given because of our transgressions we started doing a lot of bad stuff and god said okay i'm going to i'm going to give you the law so you understand what you're not supposed to do here and everybody was thus imprisoned because the moment you tell somebody what they're not supposed to do it's kind of like telling somebody hey don't think about triangles or don't think about monkeys The moment you say that, they're going to start thinking about it. The moment you tell them, thou shalt not steal, immediately the temptation is going to arise when, yeah, maybe they would have sinned without the law. But, I mean, hey, come on, now you have a specific commandment that they're going to be thinking about, and they're going to be tempted. So, I think that's, ultimately, yes, Christ does come first. The gospel does come first, but not in its fully fleshed out... um, iteration that we know of today. Now, is the law still holy and good for us to study, learn, and live by, especially the Ten Commandments and the Two Greatest Commandments? Absolutely. But, let's go ahead and move on to your second question. What is the implicit theological statement behind modern Judaism? Uh, To answer that, the I don't think it's implicit. The explicit theological statement behind modern Judaism is that Jews worship Judaism. Jews. Jews worship Jews. It's race worship. That's exactly what it is. Um, they're, they are their own priority. The Talmud makes them their own priority. They've uh, determined that what whatever they can come up with can nullify or squeeze past or weasel around God's law And that is, um, it's unfortunate, but that is the more or less explicit thing. I mean, the Hasidics and those who practice Kabbalah literally believe that God created and creates the universe as flowing outside of himself. So um, just like the hermetic theology out there for hermetism, they believe that everybody and everything flows out of God. So everything is a part of God, but they just believe that Jews are the most God out of all things. <laughs> it's, it's said pretty darn explicitly. Now you continue on. Um, I believe there is a relatively unexplored aspect of the gospel, namely any question that would make Jews today mad. Like, why did Christ come when he came? How was it so clear to the Israelites that he needed to come? How do his rebukes of the Pharisees reflect on a modern context? Well, again, Jesus came on the scene. He was incarnated by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary during the time in which the Talmud was in development. It wasn't complete yet, but it was in development, and the rabbis were having all these debates and everything like that, and approaching the dialectic that resulted in the state of modern Judaism today. That said, does God do anything by accident? Absolutely not. He knew exactly when the Romans were going to come in and destroy the temple, which gives a whole lot more religious power to those who were developing the Talmud, the Pharisees. And then, in addition to that, he knew exactly when all this would be completed. Now, there is a difference between An Old Testament Hebrew who is following the Mosaic Covenant and somebody who instead follows the Talmud. Huge difference. And I do believe there is a sense in which God chose that time in which Christ incarnated and died and rose again for us. Maybe he did, as a part of everything, do so in order to counter the new legalism that was coming into play. But also there's other things going on in the world. So yes, there is Phariseeism or Talmudry, however you want to call it, what results in modern Judaism. But there is also a growing and developing cult of the emperor of Rome. And the emperor of Rome was starting to demand that he be worshipped. And at the end of the day, if Christianity was not there to counter that, then that kind of cult would have absolutely continued to grow. Instead, well, as everybody else is offering pinches of incense to Caesar, the Christian church at that time says, no, here's who is actually worth worshiping. And that message runs counter-culturally to everything the Greeks and Romans and other Gentiles were learning at that time from the uh, Roman Pontifex Maximus. And you say a lot of these questions are very hot, but they are Important. Wait, sorry, let me go one sentence back here. Lastly, I believe that Revelation makes the most sense only to someone who is willing to entertain the truth of politics today with regard to Israel. Um, If you mean the book of Revelation, um, yes and no. The book of Revelation as an apocalyptic genre doesn't work the same way as other genres of prophecy. Typically in the Old Testament, a prophet gives a message from God, he's a spokesman for God, and he says in order to prove it, per the law in Deuteronomy chapter 18, in order to prove it, I'm going to tell you the future. That's the checksum to see if this message from God as to what the people are supposed to do or believe or think, to prove that that's legit, right? Right? Apocalypses, as you see with the book of Daniel, as you see with the book of Revelation, and with a lot of the book of Zechariah, and I believe there's a miniature apocalypse in Isaiah. Apocalypses, like Revelation, cover a broad spectrum history of everything. From the beginning when God said, let there be light, all the way to the final judgment. In some apocalyptic literature that we see in 2 Peter and Jude takes a snapshot of the apocalypse, but these other ones here will give you as full of a picture as possible. But one event which happens in heaven that is described by the prophet or apocalypticist may happen more than once. And sometimes it has happened in the past, sometimes it has happened in the present, sometimes it happens in the future. So, I agree with you. We do really need to keep a little bit of an eye here on the current political scene in Israel and elsewhere. But it is also good to keep in mind that during Luther's day, 500 years ago, this all of the book of Revelation was absolutely still applicable to what people were going through. Same thing as the days of Constantine. There are um, almost parallel, just perfect fulfillments of events and revelation in human history that happen more than once. Um, but moving on to your next point here, you say a lot of these questions are very hot, but they are important. And for those who think, what better thing to think about? Um, well, I mean, I take a broad view of all of the Christian faith being worth thinking about all the time, every day. <laughs> For everybody listening, please read your Bible every day. And when you do that in the morning or in the evening, spend the rest of the next day or the rest of that day. If you read it in the morning, just chewing on it, mulling it over. Let the Word transform you. Let the Word of God sanctify you. For God's Word is extremely precious to us. So yes, and this does come into play sometimes, especially like you said, when we hear about Christ's rebukes against the Pharisees. Yeah, that's important to think about. And his rebukes to them, because they were the developers of the Talmud, do apply very much uh, to uh, today's Jewish movements as well. P.S. The overall point of my first extremely long-form email, the Testament's, was to demonstrate that the character of God is consistent from creation to now. That is correct. God does not change, he says so in the book of Malachi chapter 3. I do believe it's necessary to confront man with his failure to make him realize the need for repentance. Yes, that is called the second use of the law. A mirror to show us our fallen state and our need for Christ. I also believe the law was godly and only Christ could be justified by it. He is the only one in history to ever live perfectly according to the law. You are correct. I think a lot of things can be seen this way where the lower side of a revelation can let us know our place and the truer purpose is for the glory of God. So one side of a dual-purposed action might not exclude the other, so the law was more than a poop test per se. And I would agree with you because... The law, properly understood, is the eternal will of God for all of humanity. It is ethics. Christian ethics is accurately understood as, well, the law. It is the law of God. So it's, while yes, there is a testing element to it, we, we do need to understand this is still the will of God, that you do not worship any other gods, that you do not take his name in vain, that you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, uh, that you honor your father and your mother that you do not kill that you do not commit adultery that you do not steal bear false witness against your neighbor covet his house or covet his people and life when we look at all of these things that's still stuff that God wants us to follow we want he wants us to follow these 10 commandments and the two greatest commandments that sum them up so With that said, I hope that uh, this answer to your email helps out. I'm going to put it on the Very Lutheran SoundCloud so that everybody can uh, get a little bit of back and forth. And maybe y'all could email me at very underscore Lutheran at com if you have other long-form questions that can't be answered on the main podcast. Anyway, God bless you. Amen and amen.